Welcome to episode three of the Radio Gaga podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm your host, Justine Pajowski, and today we are doing a deep dive into the Grateful Dead and their 1970 studio album, American Beauty. I have to be honest, I started researching this episode not knowing that much about the Grateful Dead. But after researching this episode, with everything I learned, I'll never listen to them the same way again. I have this unflinchingly goofy smile on my face whenever I listen to Dark Star now. I can't listen to Morning Dew anymore without crying. Songs like Broke Down Palace and Ripple feel like they're speaking directly to my soul. I can't escape the almost spiritual experience I feel when I listen to this band. It's unlike any other experience I've ever had as a music listener. I'm just sad I never got to see them live. But today, I'm talking to someone who has. And this is someone who has not just seen the Grateful Dead live, but has seen them live more than a hundred times. I am very excited to share with you a conversation I had with John McNamara. John is my friend Lauren's dad and has been a devoted deadhead since he was a kid. We got connected after Lauren heard that I was hoping to do a Grateful Dead album for my podcast. So she connected me with her dad, and a few days later, we got on the phone and recorded a conversation. We talked all about American Beauty. We talked about John's experience as a Grateful Dead fan, the times throughout his life that the Grateful Dead helped him through. This conversation changed the way I listened to the Grateful Dead. Whether you're a deadhead and you know everything there is to know about this band, or if you don't really know much, my goal is for all of you to enjoy this episode. I do want to mention my main sources that I used in researching The Grateful Dead and in researching American Beauty. The first was the Amazon documentary Long Strange Trip. It came out in 2017, produced by Martin Scorsese. I highly recommend this documentary to anyone looking for a really good crash course in The Grateful Dead. Secondly, I read Searching for the Sound, My Life with the Grateful Dead by bassist Phil Lesh. I loved this book. I always appreciate having that like inside look from an actual band member or a producer to what was really going on behind the scenes. There's even a chapter where Lesh dedicates multiple pages trying to adequately describe what an acid trip looks and feels like. This book was really fun to read. My third source was maybe one of the most in-depth music biographies I have ever read called A Long Strange Trip, The Inside History of the Grateful Dead. This was written by Grateful Dead's official band biographer and their publicist, Dennis McNally. It took McNally 22 years to put this book together. It is an absolute must read for any deadhead. And lastly, My guest John McNamara was such a wealth of knowledge and helped me out a lot with my research, sending me YouTube videos and other helpful resources that contributed to this episode on top of the time he spent talking to me. Someone once asked Grateful Dead band leader Jerry Garcia, what is the Grateful Dead? He said, quote, if you think of the music business as a forest, and you come to a little break in the forest where there's a small patch of sunlight in the grass, and in the middle of that patch, there are flowers growing. Those flowers, that's the Grateful Dead, unquote. There is a richness to this band that makes you feel warm and almost comforted in a way. 
These days, the Grateful Dead is typically categorized as Americana and folk music, but their history is even richer than that. Every member of the Grateful Dead came from completely different musical backgrounds, from a bluesy frontman to an avant-garde composer to a rudimentary percussionist. But arguably, the most well-known member of the Grateful Dead was lead guitarist Jerry Garcia. Jerry Garcia was inspired to learn the banjo at a very young age and was a huge fan of bluegrass music growing up. In his late teens, Jerry met songwriter Robert Hunter at Kepler's, an independent bookstore in Menlo Park, California. They started getting stoned and writing songs together, and they didn't know it at the time, but this would result in a legendary, decades-long songwriting partnership between the two of them. Around this time, the mid-60s, 16-year-old guitarist Bob Weir was a high school student in Menlo Park. One day, Weir walked into a Palo Alto music store and heard banjo music coming from one of the practice rooms. He followed the music and ended up meeting Jerry Garcia. They spent the entire day jamming away in the empty music store. A few short months later, Weir would join Jerry, Robert Hunter, and another new addition to the group, blues frontman Ron McKernan, better known as Pigpen. The band would be called Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions, a bluegrass jug band that played nightly around Palo Alto. Well, once upon a time there was an engineer Drove a locomotive both far and near Accompanied by a monkey that sat on the stool Watching everything that the engineer moved One day the engineer wanted to... Garcia became cognizant that eventually his banjo playing was feeling kind of stale. So he started getting involved with the electric guitar. Pigpen and Bobby Weir loved this idea too. And when they picked up the electrics the band mutated into this electric bluegrass blues band. The focus on perfection fell away, and so did the name Mother McCree's. The new band was dubbed the Warlocks, the last name the band would have before landing on the Grateful Dead. Two more members were added to the Warlocks in 1967, Bill Kreutzmann on drums and Phil Lesh on bass guitar. Lesh was an avant-garde composer for orchestra who had never picked up a bass before, but Jerry still wanted Lesh in the band so badly because he knew he could catch on quickly. Lesh gladly joined but couldn't even afford a bass guitar to practice on. So Jerry Garcia gave Lesh only one bass lesson, that the bottom four strings on a guitar were tuned the exact same as the four strings on a bass. All Lesh had to do was borrow his roommate's guitar, and he could practice anytime he wanted. The Warlocks improvised entire shows together night after night, relying on borrowed amps and sheer earnestness to get through their shows. After all, they were all still technically learning their instruments. Lesh had just picked up a bass for the first time. Kreutzmann had just recently learned how to drum, thanks to Jerry. Little Bobby Weir was still a teenager, and even though Jerry was a virtuoso on banjo and acoustic guitar, he was still navigating the electric. It was then that the band started to realize the importance of really listening to each other on stage. They learned how to play together and become, as they would describe it, 
five fingers on a hand. The band learned that if they relied on each other on stage and reacted meaningfully, good things would happen. The Warlocks found out their band name was already being used by another band, so they had to find a new name. Fun fact, the other band using the name at the time would eventually become the Velvet Underground. So Jerry pulled out a dictionary, opened it up, and the very first entry he saw was under the letter G, Grateful Dead. This is a term from ancient folklore, where the spirit of a deceased person bestows benefits on the one responsible for laying him to rest. But this folklore isn't about death. It's about karma. It's about how you live your life and how you relate to other people and depend on other people, much like the five of them depended on each other on stage. The folklore of the Grateful Dead says that by confronting death, you learn how to live. Coming across this term in the dictionary was a remarkable event for Jerry, who was forced to confront death at a very early age. He was only five when his dad drowned in a boating accident. Jerry felt that the universe opened that page up to him, and the name The Grateful Dead was theirs. Toward the end of 1967, the dead were rapidly developing their reputation as a mind-blowing live act. To expand their sound even further, they brought in Mickey Hart on drums and percussion. They now had two drummers, Hart and Kreutzmann, both of which brought different styles and flavors to the percussion section. So, quick recap. In 1970, the point at which the band recorded American Beauty, the lineup was Jerry Garcia on lead guitar and vocals, Bob Weir on rhythm guitar, Phil Lesh on the bass, Bill Kreutzmann on the drums, Mickey Hart on drums and percussion, lyricist Robert Hunter, and frontman Pigpen on vocals, organ, and harmonica. Pigpen would unfortunately only be with the band a couple more years after American Beauty. His health began deteriorating by his mid-20s, both in part to his alcohol abuse and being diagnosed with a rare autoimmune disease unrelated to his drinking. When he was just 27, Pigpen sadly died of a gastrointestinal hemorrhage. It was 1973, just a couple years into the band's career together. Many say Pigpen was the kindest, sweetest one in the band. It broke everyone's hearts when he passed away. There is so much to talk about when it comes to the history of the Grateful Dead. We could talk for hours about it. The topic could be its own podcast. And actually, I, it, there are multiple podcasts I found, including the Dead Pod and Broke Down Podcast. Deadheads, check those out. So I'll give you as much information as I can. And I also definitely encourage you to watch that Amazon documentary I mentioned. But really... The best way to know the Grateful Dead is to just listen to the Grateful Dead. What makes this band so unique is that they truly felt their audience was a part of the band. To the Grateful Dead, the people who listened to their music were as essential as the instruments they played, the electricity that ran through them. If you were in the audience, you were included in the experience. In that intimate relationship between the Grateful Dead and its audience, began in the mid-60s with the acid test at Ken Kesey's house. You've probably heard of Ken Kesey. 
He was the countercultural icon and author who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1962. His success as an author allowed him to move into a log compound in the mountains of California, where Kesey would host parties called acid tests. He had become fascinated with psychedelic drugs and effects like strobe lights, fluorescent paint, and most notably, live music by his favorite band and good friends, the Grateful Dead. At a typical acid test, the Grateful Dead and everyone in the house would take LSD, then the band would play. The entire room would trip at once, creating this fusion of a group mind and shared experiences on almost a telepathic level. Phil Lesh describes all of his experiences in detail in his book. Let me read you a quick passage where he describes an acid test. Quote, Entering, we find ourselves in darkness, relieved only by the blinding flashes of strobe lights. What seems like several hundred people are variously milling about, dancing strenuously, or puddled in the corners, against the walls and on the floor, all clad in colorful and exotic clothing. Several projection screens are showing vastly different sequences of images, film clips, or full-color quasi-protoplasmic blobs moving in time to the music. The music itself is manifesting not from silence, but from a bed of ambient sound created by loops of microphones and speakers and enhanced by interjections of shrieks, moans, expostulations, cries, murmurs, and laughter emitted spontaneously by the assembled freaks. End quote. By this time, everyone in the Grateful Dead had been taking acid at least once a week, except for Pigpen, who preferred alcohol. But in the three months or so that the acid test parties existed, the Grateful Dead would take longer and longer strides into the next realm of musical consciousness. From Phil Lesh, quote, At the beginning, we were a band playing a gig. At the end, we had become shamans helping channel the transcendent into our mundane lives and those of our listeners, end quote. As they started touring more often, playing for larger and larger crowds, those first experiences as the Grateful Dead would forever be ingrained in the mindset of the band. Whether playing for 100 or so at the acid tests or for a stadium of 100,000, the Grateful Dead were never just playing a gig. They were manifesting a spiritual experience for everyone there. But where this became difficult, understandably, was in the recording studio. In the late 60s, the Grateful Dead was sought out and signed by Warner Brothers, but it took years for the record company to get something out of the band that they could sell. No radio station was going to play a 14-minute song. The band was difficult in the recording studio, refusing to conform to the typical format of a hit single. And why should they? They were a live band. For the Grateful Dead, making a hit record was basically like making an ad. They just didn't care about making a lot of money and didn't care about putting out a hit record. Still, Jerry regarded every day that he didn't have to go out and get a job a real miracle. The band was amazed at how they'd grown the way they did. So they figured if they just kept touring, they could make a modest living. So they eventually agreed to put out studio albums, The Grateful Dead, Anthem of the Sun, Oxomoxoa, Working Man's Dead, and the album we're discussing today, American Beauty. American Beauty wouldn't be their last studio album by a long shot, but it would go down in history as one of the most legendary. We'll get into that more with John later in the episode. 
Because the Grateful Dead treated their audience like partners, they wanted to make the concert-going experience the best it could be. In the early 70s, they chose to spend an unconscionable amount of money on one of the most legendary live sound systems in music history, the Wall of Sound. The Wall of Sound was the most unbelievable PA you could ever imagine, designed in the mid-70s by the Grateful Dead sound engineer, Bear. Quick side note about Bear. His real name was Ousley Stanley, and he played a key role in the hippie movement in the 1960s. Bear was a chemist, and he made the best LSD you could find. I even read that Jimi Hendrix was inspired to write Purple Haze after a particularly memorable batch of acid handmade by Bear. He had met the Grateful Dead at Ken Kesey's acid tests. Not only was Bear the band's first sound man, but coming from a well-to-do family, was actually able to finance the band in their earliest years. Okay, back to the wall of sound. This behemoth sound system was built by hand by Bear and his faithful roadie crew. It was made up of more than 500 speakers, and crews had to use scaffolding to set it up for every show. The crew would wake up at 6 a.m., drive to the venue for 8 a.m. call. Upon arriving at the venue, it took four hours to build up the wall of sound. Then they'd wire it up all afternoon, just in time for sound check at 4. Doors would open at 7. The Grateful Dead played until 1 or 2 in the morning. Then the crew would tear down the system and put it back on the trucks, which would take another four hours. Once they were all packed up around 6 a.m., they'd start the drive to the next show. Clearly, this process was only tolerated for a very short time, so they retired the wall, replacing it in 1976 with a much more practical sound system. Let's talk about the most enthusiastic, faithful following of the Grateful Dead, the Deadheads. The Grateful Dead embodied this spirit of going out and having an adventure in America. Following the Grateful Dead on tour was a catalyst to adventure and finding community in one another. Deadheads would typically become Deadheads by being mentored by older brothers and sisters. What made these fans so excited to see the Dead night after night was that the shows were different every single time. They would see different versions of the songs played, different set lists, longer or better solos than the night before. The Grateful Dead played more than 2,300 shows in their career, and not one of them was the same as the one before it. Within the Grateful Dead fan base, you also had what were called tapers, ordinary folks who would come in, get the closest seat possible, and set up tape recording gear to record entire shows. The record company wanted to shut down the tapers, for obvious reasons, but the band was really fine with it. As far as they were concerned, the more people who heard their live shows, the better. Tapes of Grateful Dead concerts ended up being the greatest promotional tool in the history of music. They got even more fans, more tapers, and began to double and triple the size of their audience. Though on the surface, this rapidly growing audience was great for the Grateful Dead, they would begin to crack under the pressure of being a full-fledged rock band. Jerry Garcia had a strong belief that the Grateful Dead should be leaderless. Yet it was Garcia who unwillingly became the god figure for Grateful Dead fans. 
He never wanted the responsibility of being the leader. No one in the band did. They collectively just decided that things would happen the way they were supposed to happen. What resulted of this lack of leadership was that no one wanted to say no to anything and the whole thing became super dysfunctional. Drug use amongst the band got even worse and things on tour just became unbearable. After a much needed but very short hiatus, the Grateful Dead were back out on the road again. The late 70s was considered their golden era, at which point some of their most popular shows happened. But the hard drugs hadn't gone away. In the early 1980s, Garcia's health began to decline. His drug habits caused him to lose the liveliness on stage that he had become so well known for. After trying to gradually reduce his opiate intake in 1985, Garcia slipped into a diabetic coma for several days in July of 1986. After Garcia had plenty of time to recoup, his improved health and the band's commercial success with the song Touch of Grey made the late 1980s one of the most memorable times to be at a Grateful Dead show. The band's energy and chemistry peaked in the late 1980s into their 1990 tour. Performances were at their best, and every show exceeded its maximum audience capacity. This all came to a sudden halt when keyboardist Brent Midland died of a heroin overdose after the 1990 summer tour. This is where the plot sort of turned for Jerry. He was heartbroken over the death of his friend and started looking for a way out. Simply put, Jerry was scared of how big the Grateful Dead had become. He tried many times to get sober and start fresh, but he would continue to slip into addiction. The Grateful Dead was an incredible source of inspiration, love, and positive energy for so many of their fans. And Jerry was at the center of it all. But what puts it all into perspective is knowing Jerry didn't have a Grateful Dead of his own. There was no other band that could lift the burden that he was able to lift for so many. He was the Grateful Dead's Jerry Garcia, and that role would begin closing in on him in his final years. Garcia passed away of a heart attack in 1995. The band decided to disband after his passing, though there have been a number of reunions by the surviving members involving various other musicians. Most recently, Phil Lesh, Bill Kreutzmann, and Bob Weir are touring with John Mayer as Dead & Company. They just wrapped up their most recent tour, but now more than ever, I want to catch them on the next one. legacy of the Grateful Dead lives on. Their music created a sense of comfort to turn to in hard times and a community of friends to celebrate with in the good times. I was so honored to talk to today's guest and learn from someone who lived through all of this as a devoted fan of the Grateful Dead. Let's get into my interview with John McNamara.
I'd like to welcome my guest, John McNamara. John, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, Justine. So can you just talk a little bit maybe about your relationship with the Grateful Dead? Where did it start? How long have you been a fan? Yeah, sure. I mean, I grew up in a family of four older sisters. I was born in 1960, so every two years ahead of me was one of my sisters. So they had a certainly a love affair with the Grateful Dead from when the dead was first, you know, sort of incarnated in 1965. American Beauty came along five years later. But so that's that's really when I, you know, it was probably in the late 60s. Uh, so I was probably nine years old, you know, eight, nine years old listening to you know, what at that time was uh, the, the psychedelic scene of, of mm-hmm. the Grateful Dead. But that cr- quickly changed in 1970 when they released American Beauty as well as Working Man's Dead. So pretty, pretty far back. Do you remember the first time you listened to American Beauty? I would probably say it would have been, you know, the, the album was released, I think, November 1st of 1970. But certainly what had been taking place prior to that is... You know, the dead were playing some of these songs, um, you know, prior to the release of the album. And what, what the dead enabled people to do was to tape their music. They, they, they set up areas where tapers were able to create cassettes. So my older sisters had friends that had cassettes. So it would have been before, you know, it would have been before the formal release. Would you say American Beauty is their best studio album? <laughs> That's hard to say. You know, because at the, at the time, Jerry said it, it every track was a winner. For him to say that, you know, obviously was, was you know, quite a big monumental you know, set of words for him to say. But it really did change, you know, the, the future of the band and where the band was going to go. They, they were broke. They were flat-ass broke. They didn't have a, you know, a pot to pee in. And, and that's because of a couple of different things. Um, you know, Mickey Hart, who is one of two drummers of the band, his father, Lenny, was the manager of oh, the Oh, yeah, I Dad. read about this. Yeah, so you know the story. You know, he ran off with the money. Uh, it was $180,000. It's all the money that the Grateful Dead mm. had. And later they wrote a song called He's On. So the scene was they, they needed they needed to make some money. So they cut two albums in six months. And they also changed, as Jerry said, from you know, making fucking psychedelic music to stuff people <laughs> wanted to hear, um, which, you know, it, it, it was a little twangy and a little country on, on Working Man's Dead. But I would say that this was one of their masterpieces that they ever produced. And these are songs, you know, with the exception, you know, of maybe one or two. These are songs that were in their repertoire until July 9th, 1995, when they played their last concert in Chicago. It, it is, without a doubt, the album um, that I think changed the way people thought about The Grateful Dead. So something interesting that I noticed about American Beauty is that they recorded it over at Wally Hyder Studio in San Francisco. Right. And um, my first episode, Rumors, that was one of the studios that they had used to record Rumors. I think at the same time, I think Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young were recording uh, – uh, deja, deja vu, deja vu, yeah. At the same, mm-hmm. at the same time as uh, American Beauty, I think the following year was like Van Morrison. I think Tupelo Honey was recorded there. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of significance to that, um, which I think is kind of cool too. The Dead were not known as a, a beautiful sounding, you know, lyrics because Pigpen was the front man. 
you know, and Pig had a good voice. He was a blues player, um, but Weir wasn't singing, you know, at the time, and neither was, you know, Jerry wasn't spending a lot of time singing either. And and Stephen still spent time with Weir um, in Wally Hyder at the, at the time that they were doing this album. And, you know, Weir gave him a lot of credit, you know, over the course of time as to lyrically really helping enrich, you know, Bob's voice. Um, Jerry didn't necessarily need it, um, or maybe just Jerry didn't want it, but Bob sort of took it in and, and did what he could with it. So the other thing that was taking place at Wally Hyder was, you know, the dead had, um, you know, a, a, a bunch of people that were involved in recording, you know, um, Owsley, um, Rock Scully, um, just a whole crew of people. And what it typically created was chaos. <laughs> and it was as, as as Jerry used to like to say was it it was um, people called it managed chaos and he called it unmanaged chaos um, and they would go into a recording studio and you know the big record label guys were there from Epic or Rounder Records or Rhino Records or whatever and they would just look at the band and go you guys are a train wreck we can't get a song on mm-hmm. the vinyl out of you. <laughs> And what Wally Hyder's brought, what Wally Hyder brought was, you know, they they had their own group, you know, of you know, uh, sound, and it enabled the the band to produce not only Working Man's Dead, but you know, um, American Beauty in record time, something that Dead never did before. Jerry had always said he never wanted to be, he never wanted anything like set in stone, because everything was um, always so fluid with the music. Yeah, um, it, it, it's absolutely true. Um, they never were a studio band. I mean, the Grateful Dead toured six to seven months out of the year, you know, which is, you know, why you ask somebody how many Grateful Dead shows they've been to, and they, they, they throw out a 320 number, and you're like, how in the world could you have seen 320 concerts? Well, you could see 85 to 90 um, just hopping on the bus in a year. <laughs> So it really, you know, it, it wasn't like, um, you know, trying to find, um, you know, trying to find a show. Shows were going on and, and and they were going on all over the place. You mentioned you had some parking lot stories for me. <laughs> <laughs> what can you share? You know, the parking lot was a destination. Getting there was piling a bunch of friends in and saying, let's go camping and ending up in the parking lot at a Grateful Dead concert, which enabled you to go to the next parking lot, to the next parking lot, to the next parking lot. And that's how, you know, you, you caught a bunch of shows. But it was just that easy. You, you know, it wasn't really, really thought through. It was just an adventure. But when you got to the parking lot, you know, what you found is, you know, there, there was just everything there. And the parking lots were, they allowed camping. So, you know, you could pull in your, you know, your car. I had a Volkswagen, um, square bike wagon, um, any van. What was really going on was it was just a community of people. It was all self-contained. So you were camping there, you were living there, you were going to the shows. If you weren't in the shows, you were hanging back. Men, women, children. And as I said before, you you it was it was hard to buy something people really weren't selling stuff 
you know, with the exception of a few things, but you, you were basically on the barter system. I remember, you know, sitting there and had a bunch of, um, you know, a bunch of big strawberries and watermelon. And some guy, some guy came up with his gorgeous Grateful Dead Jerry shirt on and, you know, we started shooting the shit. And next thing I know, you know, we're giving him strawberries. He's eating watermelon. And um, I said, that's a really cool Jerry shirt. And he takes it off and hands it to me. <laughs> Do you still <laughs> have that? I still have that shirt. Good. Absolutely. You didn't barter it away. That's good. <laughs> Absolutely. It's one of the many, which is really the moral of the story of the Grateful Dead. You know, the, the thing that took place inside and around, you know, the Grateful Dead and, and, and the shows and the people in the parking lot um, was 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 really best described as kind. No one had any, you know, angst, anger, um, you know, towards anybody. Everybody was there just to have fun. Everybody was there to enjoy the music. Everybody was there to enjoy the people. Um, make new friends, go to new cities, make more friends, um, and just have a good time. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until very, very late in the scene that it started to get ugly. Um, but, you know, from 1965 until probably 1994, um, that's what it was all about. Well, why don't we get into the first song on side A? Box of Rain. Most of the dead songs were written by Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter. So this was actually kind of a special song because it was Phil Lesh and Robert Hunter. So maybe if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, Phil was never a guy, uh, you know, he was into the classics. And when he met Jerry, Jerry said, hey, you're going to learn, you know, you're going to play the bass. And Phil picked up the bass in a matter of, you know, 10 days. And it, it, it was well known, you know, at the time that his father was dying of cancer. And he started not only penning the lyrics, but penning the, the music for Box of Rain. And he went back to Hunter and Hunter said, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. I, as, as Bob said, as fast as the pen was pulled, I was able to put down the lyrics and hand it back to Phil. It was done very, very quickly. What took place then was Phil would practice the song as he was driving. At the time, the band lived down in Palo Alto and Phil was from the East Bay. Um, so his parents were still back there. His dad was in the hospital. His dad was going into the nursing home. And, you know, at night after, you know, playing the longshoremen's, you know, uh, shows, Phil would get in the car and drive and he would practice singing the song. And, you know, he 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 crafted it into, as I said, you know, pretty much a masterpiece. It's beautiful. Uh, I love this song. (laughs) Yeah. It's the perfect Um, it's the perfect first song for side A. Yeah. And, you know, it was first, you know, this album was cut in November first in 1970 and the first time it was performed was in october of 72 so it sat on the album for two years why was that and um because phil didn't like phil didn't sing he had a horrible voice (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't that he it wasn't that bad but you know he was a better bass player than he was Mm -hmm. vocalist (laughs) um 
but and then from 72 i mean they played it in 72 and it, and then it jumped it was gone until 86 no kidding and yeah and um you know i remember going to shows with you know wearing t-shirts that said let phil sing oh. and um <laughs> and we we would sell those t-shirts and and throw one or two on stage so that you know after the first set phil would come back on stage he'd always change shirts and and ironically you know we had phil with a let phil sing shirt on oh my and gosh that's unfortunately, awesome Unfortunately, they didn't let him, but there were other chants that, you know, we want Phil and, and all of that. But, you know, what Hunter really was was thinking about was, you know, the box of the box of rain is is the globe that we live on. And he originally said the ball of rain and he and Phil were working on it and they came up with the, the ball of rain. And then Hunter said, I, I just don't think that ring's going to work. So, or that, that ball of rain's going to work. So we'll just call it the box of rain. But, you know, to me, it's, it's a song that um, finds me. I don't have to go and, and, and look when I need box of rain. You know, when you're going through tough times and, you know, Phil's parent, Phil's dad was dying. I've lost two parents and other you know, very close uh, family members. Mm -hmm. And it just provides a significant amount of compassion um, and love uh, for what Phil was going with, with, you know, with his dad. And if you read the lyrics, you know, there's a constant there of what do you want me to do? Yeah. Like, I'm here for you. Tell me, tell me what you need. Right. What do you want? And it's, it's really a beautiful song. And, and it's, it's probably, you know, certainly Ripple, you know, is it has a similar um, effect on me. But Box of Rain is um, at times, you know, Justine, I, I, uh, I turn on the, I turn on the car and, and bang, there's Box of Rain. And mm-hmm. it's like, I certainly needed you. Thank you. Oh, that's so good. I love that. You know, I and noticed, it was the last song the Grateful Dead ever played. I I noticed that at Soldier Field. I had done I, I wanted to know the last song that was it was Box of Rain. Right. I do notice I do notice about Robert Hunter's lyrics that he he uses the senses a lot, like feel, see. It's very it's sort of like tactile the way that he that he writes his lyrics. Um, And obviously, I mean, he said before that he doesn't like to really discuss what they mean because they mean something different to everybody. Um, I read kind of a funny quote that he said where he was somebody asked him to explain a line. And he says, if I could say it in prose, I wouldn't need to write the song. Hunter, along with, you know, with Garcia, I mean, they were they were really, you know, quite a pair. And, um, you know, Hunter would be asked, you know, what was meant by those lyrics, you know, sort of as, as the path you were just going down. And he said, you're asking me to get inside my head. <laughs> Um, right. 15, 15 years ago or 10 years ago. And I can't even, he said, and I can't even get it in my head, you know, <laughs> right now. It, you know, I, I remember Jerry talking about it because, you know, in this sort of gets back to, you know, where we started, which is the deadheads. And what, what Jerry said is, it's not, it's not what's important to the meaning of what we intended the song to be. It's the interpretation of you and us together that make it the experience that it turns out to be. 
you know, and, and that was the thing with the Grateful Dead. It, it was, you know, what was going on on stage was as important as to what was going on in front of the stage. And they were, you know, the band was as enthralled with, you know, what was happening in, in front of them as they were with, you know, cranking out what they needed to crank out. And, the, and that really made a Grateful Dead concert. Uh, why don't we talk about, let's talk about Friend of the Devil. Spent the night in Utah in a cave up in the hills. Sit out and run, but I take my time. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine. I get home before daylight. Just might get some sleep tonight. I love the mandolin just as an instrument. That's one of my favorite parts of this song. Um, Maybe if you could tell tell us a little bit about what the song is about. Oh, now you're asking me to interpret what they were going through, <laughs> which is a, a, always a difficult challenge. The way that the dead, you know, played Friend of the Devil on American Beauty was, you know, it was an upbeat manner. You know, over the course of time, it was later slowed down significantly. I think the track was, you know, just under four minutes. Later, like most Grateful Dead songs, you know, Friend of the Devil became a, you know, 18, 20 minute song, 16, 15, 20, something like that. But it it wasn't, you know, a hurry up and crank it. And that's not to say that it, it wasn't absolutely a masterpiece when it came out on um, on American Beauty. Um, it's just that they they went in and played it that way. And Garcia came back, you know, I think many years later and said that he had heard, of all people, Kenny Loggins, uh, who I loved, um, of Loggins and Messina, play um, the slowed down version of, uh, you know, A Friend of the Devil. And and that's when the band, you know, just sort of slowed it down and took their time with it. And, you know, it, it, it was played, I, I don't know, probably you know, over 500 times. Something that I noticed about American Beauty and, and I'm, you know, the Grateful Dead in general, but they were the masters of writing songs in pretty simple keys. They're all in standard tuning. That like really iconic descending, like do, do, do. That's, that's all that is, is a G major scale. I noticed that a lot with American Beauty. He's such the master of, making it sound really simple and really, really hard at the same time. That's kind of what I like to listen to. Uh, I like to listen to the bass lines in every song, and the best ones are the ones that you don't notice right away. And then you really listen for them, you're like, oh, my God. If that wasn't in this song, like, <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, that line makes the song. Let's talk about Sugar Magnolia. Let's do it. It's all yours. Okay. <laughs> well, I love all the songs on this album, and I I think I especially love this one for how upbeat it is. Um, I love the coda at the end, which I know is very significant. The Sunshine Daydream coda. With Sugar Magnolia, it was it was just a fun song. It wasn't intense. This one just absolutely brought out the dancing bones in everybody. I bet it the did. The place just <laughs> lit up. And it, if you think about it, um, it's really virtually two songs. 
you know, you got Sugar Mag and then you got Sunshine Daydream. And the way, and the reason that I say that is they could finish Sugar Magnolia before going into Sunshine Daydream, and it could be a few seconds, literally. You know, boom, Sunshine Daydream, boom. Or it could be a few songs later, Sunshine Daydream comes in after they've played two more songs. And in the case of Bill Graham, when Bill Graham died, um, the dead and other members of a variety of different bands um, played, in, I think it was in Golden Gate Park. And um, the dead had, had played Sugar Magnolia, but it was like, you know, nine days before and they never mm-hmm. and they never played Sunshine Daydream. And Bill Graham was, you know, Bill Graham was huge. Mm-hmm. And um, they opened up with Sunshine Daydream. So it, it was kind of fun that, you know, they could go in a variety of different places. And um, like I say, you know, even going out and listening to, um, you know, Dead & Company, this is, you know, it's on, the, it's on the repertoire and it's certainly a fun song. Why don't we move on to Operator? Operator, can you help me? Help me if you please. Give me the right area code and the number that I need. Uh, it's one of my favorites. As I said, Pigpen was, I mean, he was the front man of the band. From 65, you know, to, you know, his passing away in 73. The Grateful Dead really had a, a sound to it. And it was a blues band. And, um... You know, the early tunes that they played were, you know, some of the historical blues songs. And, you know, Pig was a guy that drank, but he didn't do drugs. And he looked like, you know, one of the meanest looking hell's angels that ever, you know, walked the planet. The reality was he was the most kindest, gentlest person uh, in the band. Garcia said that, you know, his kids, Jerry's kids, looked forward to Pigpen coming over to babysit. Oh, that's really um, sweet. (laughs) Yeah. You know, this song, when I first heard it, just just resonated because of the lyrics. This song, um, it was played four times. That's it. Why do you think that Uh, is? Well, Pig died. (laughs) That was was one reason. Um, I did hear, um, I did hear... Um, the Dead and Company have played Operator at, at least once. I don't, I don't know. I haven't checked it out, but you know, it's a, it would be a great tune to play. It's just got a, it's just got a great riff to it, um, you know. And I think the last, you know, the last lyrics. I don't know where she's going. I don't care where she's been, long as she's been doing it right. That's just a classic blues line. Would you say Operator is your favorite song? They're all fantastic tunes. I mean, I knew you were going to ask me this question, mm-hmm. but um, it just depends on how you feel at that moment in time and you know what you need and, and uh, where you are. So I, I could say, yeah, there's times where I, I could put on operator and turn it up as loud as you could possibly get it. And I can do the same with Sugar Magnolia. I can do the same with uh, Ripple or, or uh, Box of Rain. Well, the, the next song is one of my favorite songs, Candyman. I love this song. I've listened to it. I've listened to it so many times. 
the past couple of days. I mean, the past yeah. couple of weeks and months, really, like listening to the whole album. But the pedal steel solo around like three minutes or so is mm-hmm. it just like it gives me chills every single time. I don't know how. Some part of that hits me in my heart, in my in like in my soul, and flips this switch for me. That's like, oh my god! Like I'm gonna I'm gonna start crying right now. Like oh, my, I gotta stop listening to this song. <laughs> but it for anybody who is not familiar with a pedal steel, we're talking about a pedal steel guitar, which is an instrument that you sit down to play, and it kind of looks like you have two guitar necks sort of laying side by side. It's an instrument where you have to use both hands, both feet, and sometimes your knees even to make it make sound. In one hand is a steel slide, and the other hand, you do a lot of picking. That solo that I was talking about around, I think it's just after three minutes on Candyman, you can hear the instrument actually sounds, it makes it sort of have this this vibrato that you hear uh, coming out of like a human voice. So it feels, it very much um, adds a new element to the song um, that isn't somebody's voice isn't a guitar but it's somewhere in the middle and it's it's really pretty it's always fascinated me that instrument and and like I said earlier like this this song is just a really easy chord progression and somehow sounds like so ethereal especially his solo you know it's it was played very differently in um you know on the road than it was played on American Beauty to me, Candyman was just sort of that song that came about in the first set of of a show where the band had sort of warmed you up and, and sort of got your dancing shoes on. And, you know, the, the second set was always just a complete blowout. You know, you you if you were sitting in your seat, there was something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the first set, you know, they could sort of take it down and play a lullaby or, or do something. And that's typically where Candyman came in. I won't say that, you know, it jumped off the, jumped off the charts at me. I'd say that it, it became <laughs> kind of funny, you know, in the parking lots at Grateful Dead concerts, you know, were thousands of deadheads, you know, from all over the country that had been, you know, touring with the band and going from city to city and meeting new friends and you know, everything was, um, you know, on the barter system for the most part. People weren't selling stuff. You'd give away a grilled cheese sandwich to get a T-shirt. You know, it was just that sort of gig. But there was always somebody looking for the candy man. <laughs> <laughs> That's we what all I know figured it was about. <laughs> right. Let's talk about Ripple. I don't know, don't really care. Let there be songs to fill the air. Ripple in still water when there is no pebble tossed. 
This is just an absolutely all-around gorgeous song. It's just beautiful. It was encored, you know, it was the encore song for years mm. and years and years. Same with Broke Down Palace. Um, you know, acoustically, it, Jerry just sounds great. He sounds really good. So from from all aspects, you know, what you have is it's just a it's just a gem all the way around. You know, even through, you know, the, the, the end of time, the dead were playing Ripple. I mean, for some of the acoustic shows that they would do up in New York, Radio City Music Hall, um, you know, Ripple was originally an acoustic song and it remained an acoustic song, despite, you know, some of the other songs going, you know, electric. But when the dead went into Ripple, um, you would just see deadheads brought to tears. It, 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 was, so, it was something that just hit you. You know, when, when Jerry's singing, reach out your hand, if your cup be empty, if your cup is full, may it be again. Uh, let it be known there is a fountain that was not made by the hands of man. I mean, those are really profound, really strong lyrics and would have people sort of walking around scratching their head like, oh, uh, I'm not sure what that meant, but it certainly meant a lot to me. You know, there there is a lot of debate and I'd be interested in just seeing where, you know, what you know, what you think and what you've read and, and, and listened to is, you know, what is the primary source of the song? Where did it originally come from? There have been references um, to the 23rd Psalm. And, and Hunter said he was never a religious guy, but only occasionally. The reference in the 23rd Psalm, you know, it talks about still waters. And that's what, you know, Ripple breaks the still water what hunter said is it's about the soul and that an un you know a body of water is the soul and that when there is a ripple it's an individual's soul i mean that's really heavy stuff but you know coming from bob hunter that probably that's probably, probably what is. it was <laughs> yeah, yeah you know sort of what was going through his head at the time it's really interesting. I, I've always seen I've always seen the lyrics to this as very, very individual, like you said. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of like we were talking earlier about songs that I, I'm here for you. Um, I'm reaching out my hand to you, like I'm I'll be here, I can help you. What do you need from me? And this is more like and if you go, no one may follow, that path is for your steps alone. It seems like you need to look inward to find somebody to help you. You know, because it's only yourself in some cases. This is one of the songs that many a deadhead use in their in their funerals. Hmm. And if you read through the words, it is um, it sounds like a it, it it is sounds like a song that has taken you to the you know to the next life. You know, there is a road, no simple highway between the dawn and the dark of night. And if you go, no one may follow. That's for your own steps. So, you know, those, you, you, with a lot of the Grateful Dead songs, you could, you know, you could rationalize anything. <laughs> um, but this, to me, is one of those types of songs where when, you're, when your cleats are all hung up and there's an encore tune, Ripple might be the one that, uh, that's in there. Because it was certainly, it was certainly, you know, a, a tune for years and years and years that closed many a concert. 
Let's talk about Broke Down Palace. Another one of those songs that um, is pretty powerful. You, you know, when you hear it, it's a beautiful ballad. It starts slow, and you know, even on the album, as much as in in a in a live show, you know, Jerry just sort of builds up the song, and he takes it up a notch, and he takes it up more notches, um, and then he can just gently take you all the way back down. It, it, it's just one of those types of songs. The lyrics are absolutely remarkable. And you sort of think about Broke Down Palace and, and Ripple. And to me, not to be morbid again, but, you know, if you were going to have a song at the end of your funeral, it could be Ripple. It could be Broke Down Palace. They're just both beautiful songs, you know, that are sort of a, a, a history of, you know, somebody's potentially somebody's life and, you know, is, is it said in Broke Down Palace, you know, mama, mama, many words I've come since I first left home. Fare you well, fare you well. I love you more than words can tell. Uh, those are, that's, it's gorgeous. that's good stuff. Yeah. It's great stuff. I read that Ken Kesey made a, um, a speech at the University of Virginia. I think it was 1998. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how he lost his son in, in an accident the the van his his wrestling team's van went off the cliff right and kizi says you know if anybody knows the song broke down palace after jed had been dead a few months we went to see the dead they did their usual stuff and got their big ovations and then they started playing broke down palace and they all turned toward me and all our family was sitting up there they all turned toward us and the audience began to turn toward us and that song was sent from the Grateful Dead to our bruised hearts. And it was like, yeah, we feel it. And when it was over, there was no applause. Everybody knew it. We were all crying. And how many bands do you know that could do that? That's like... One. Oh, yeah, right? <laughs> it's just this song just like, it hits a nerve that you weren't expecting to hit, to have hit that day. And like it, like you were saying before it's like some of these songs you just don't you don't know you need them until until they are there for you and and that was a really beautiful story that I heard because you know Ken Kesey was so close to the band and it that was just such a memorable experience for him and you know how many other millions of people have had experiences similar to that I think similar to Box of Rain it's a story you know Box of Rain is a little different because it's very specific it's very well known you know, where it was going. Um, and the lyrics were tied to, you know, what was happening to Phil and, and Phil's father at the time. Hunter at one time said, you know, similar to Box of Rain, the Box of Rain is just the globe. It's the world. And what he said about Broke Down Palace is, it's wherever you are. It's wherever you live. It's whatever your your reality is. And what's happening is your reality is just crumbling. And you're you're finishing up life, 
and you're going to go to the river and you're going to lay down and you're going to listen to sweet songs. And um, this is another one of the songs where, uh, where, you know, a lot of deadheads sort of, you know, you know, sort of freaked out, but um, it might've been the acid or the mushrooms or something else contributing, <laughs> but, but there was certainly a lot of emotion in certain songs and Broke Down Palace is absolutely one of those. Let's talk about Till the Morning Comes. I'll watch out for you. You're my woman now. Make yourself easy. Make yourself easy. Make yourself easy. Do we all fall down? I get had a short. It had a short history. Well, I get heavy Beatles vibes on this one, and I don't know if there's uh, a reason for that. But I hear all just White Album, Revolver era Beatles all over this song. Well, if you listen to the album, you know American Beauty. The the Till the Morning Comes is the most upbeat song on the album. You know, it just sort of comes out and it's ripping. You know, Operator's got its sultry, bluesy, you know, look and feel and taste to it. Um, till the morning come, comes is just a it, it's sort of refreshing it's just like bang but for whatever reason and i don't know the reason it only was played five times in the repertoire but there's you know there's a couple of lines that i love and maybe it just sort of brings me back to you know having four older sisters with their boyfriends being around and sort of at the time you know what was going on um but the line you're my woman make yourself easy just sort of you know the boyfriends would be around and these guys were all cool uh they were all long hair they were all listening to the grateful dead they were just good guys and that line to me sort of resonates with what the deadheads were like when they were around their women and that sounds i don't mean that in any stretch of the mean to be a sexist thing it was like i'm going to take care of you and we're going to be fine. You're my woman. Make yourself easy. I like that. Let's talk about Addicts of My Life. In the Addicts of My This is my favorite bass part on American Beauty. Mm-hmm. And it I think the reason for that is that what I mentioned before where you don't notice it at first and then you start to listen to the song more and more and the bass line just becomes more crucial to the song and adds so much color to it that if it went away, it wouldn't be the same song to me. Obviously, avant-garde composer turned... I guess I'm playing the bass now. Like, (laughs) you know, I think Jerry gave him one bass lesson and it was, all right, here's the guitar. Play the bottom four strings. Practice on those because it's the same as the bass. There you go. Come to rehearsal Mm -hmm. in two weeks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just, I I love his work on this song and and that, I think that stands out to me as my, it's one of my favorite moments on the album. Uh, Mm -hmm. This, this feels kind of like a, a madrigal almost, like a choir song. 
um, <laughs> to me. I don't know. <laughs> is that is that weird? Like, it, it's in a good way. I'm saying um, that it's you no, know it's, it's, they actually did that on Terrapin Station, but not on Addicts in My Life. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I hear what you're saying. I, yeah, you know, it I, has I, now, it has that no, it has I that kind it. of feeling to it. Um, yeah, sure. Which I like. It's it's kind of unexpected. This is another one of those songs for me where Robert Hunter uses a lot of senses. Um, it makes it very much like a, a feeling kind of experience. It it really paints a picture for me of maybe not literally what was going on in his head, but it paints a picture for me maybe of what's going on in my own head, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, see, there you go. Which now I love. I love it. <laughs> well, you know, um, when you had an album, you um, you could – you could pick up the needle and you could move it anywhere you wanted. Um, and it, in the attics of my life was not a, 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 a tune that I, I frequently went to on American beauty. And then I heard it, you know, in, in shows as time progressed in the 19 early 1990s, it, it got to a point where Jerry was singing it and you realized how sick he was. I mean, Jerry was really sick. Yeah. Um, for many times, I mean, he went through a diabetic coma. You know, he, he he was just not a healthy guy. He tried many times to get healthy, but he just couldn't do it. But you started listening to a guy singing about in the attics of my life. It you know took on a sense of this is Hunter didn't write it about Jerry Garcia, but Jerry Garcia is now singing about his life. Wow. In the earliest shows that I went to, when Jerry was just absolutely ripping it. You know, to later in in life where he played Broke Down Palace and you go, you know, Jerry, you're singing about yourself. Mm. I mean, you're just a walking dead man. I mean, he was just really unhealthy. And I don't mean that in a, in a, in a bad way, but it just was the reality of how he was, you know, what he had done to himself. You know, there were uh, there were many iterations of Jerry Garcia and, you know. You know, we're talking about American Beauty and, you know, and the Grateful Dead, but you need to also take into consideration, you know, when when these guys weren't touring and you couldn't catch 95 shows of the Grateful Dead, you could catch 25 shows of the Jerry Garcia band that same year. Right. He didn't stop. He never stopped. No, no. He and Bob Weir had his bands. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they played in each other's bands and... You know, then there was Bobby and the Midnights and Ace. And, you know, it, it was just a lot of fun. You could catch. And I liked going to Garcia bands a lot, um, shows, um, because I, I, I didn't feel that you um, had a bunch of, it, there weren't a bunch of wannabe Grateful Deadheads at a Jerry Garcia band concert. They were there because they wanted to see Jerry play. That's cool. I, yeah. you know, you see it from that perspective, you see it from the audience perspective, and they were able to get more of Jerry Garcia. And on the other side of it, you know, I think in the documentary, someone said the trick of surviving the music industry is to leave it. And he never <laughs> left it. <laughs> and how, you know, how true is that? You, you know, you have to give yourself a break once in a while. And it, since he had a banjo in his hands, I don't think he took a break. Well, and I think that's, you know, goes back to when you're, um, when you're paying the band paid for everybody it wasn't their touring expenses but it was you know it was a million bucks to keep the family alive and that was a huge weight on the band the problem was it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger you know in the dark came out 
I mean, soldier, you're playing soldier field, you're playing, you know, giant stadium, you're playing JFK, you know, you're playing in front of 85,000 people and they didn't want to do that. But if you had a million dollar bogey a month, you had it to sort of turned into that. Yeah. Unfortunately it turned into that. And that's, <clears throat> that's not really where they wanted to go. Hey, how about trucking? So the band was started in 65. It's 1970. They're writing their autobiography um, about life on the road, all the cities, the special interest things that they were doing, and all of those fun things, you know, that were happening. Um, also, the, you know, the not so fun things about not being at home. You know, they rattle through all of the, all the cities, New York, Detroit, Dallas, you know, Houston, um, and there's a line in there, and I can't remember it exactly in it, but it's it's all on the same street. And what that means is all of these cities, or they're all on the same street, meaning they all look alike. So it, it's funny because it's a five-year autobiography about a band that played, you know, for 30 years. So Truckin' was played 520 times. Hmm. And the, the last time it was played was in St. Louis on July 6, 1995, which is my hometown, which is where I saw the last trucking. Oh, my gosh. Um, three days later, they concluded their tour in Chicago at Soldier Field. Mm -hmm. And Jerry died, you know, a month later to the day. Oh, my gosh. But we're not going to end on that low note. No. <laughs> I do want to talk about arguably one of the most iconic lines that's come out of a Grateful Dead song, uh, sort of passed into this collective lexicon. What a long, strange trip it's been. I I think this is such a cool line because it doesn't just it doesn't just apply to their five years touring together. It can apply it can apply to anything. It could apply to your life. Really, what a long, strange trip it's been. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, put it on your tombstone. I feel like I want this plate at my funeral, not one of the sad ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, no, yeah, yeah. This is absolutely one of those pick-me-up um, type of tunes that as soon as you heard it, as mm -hmm. soon as you heard Phil, you know, thumping away at you, it was it was a tune that you knew it was coming. It, it's funny because American Beauty was 42 minutes in length. The trucking that I saw was 27 minutes. <laughs> So it's more than half of the album. You know, you just had a blast listening to it. Just keep chugging on, on, on. Arrows of neon and flashing marquees out on Main Street. Chicago, New York, Detroit, and it's all on the same street. A typical city involved in a typical that's, that's all the tracks on American Beauty. So let's really quick get into the title. So let's talk about the title, American Beauty, and the album cover. As far as I understand it, the title kind of has, the title feels to me like a, a nod to Americana, 
the American experience of wanting to go and find new lands and American beauty being what you get to see along the way. That's how I interpret it, but I'm not sure if you have another interpretation of it. No, I think that's, you know, that's a good interpretation. I think that there was a couple of things that, you know, had taken place in 1970 with Working Man's Dead and, and with American Beauty. And that was the band sort of made a transition from playing, you know, really their psychedelic stuff to now playing some of the country songs like, um, you know, Me and My Uncle and El Paso and some of those. And then what everything was on American Beauty. But there was an era that Kreutzmann talked about in his book that was called the Bakersfield uh, era. What was taking place in Bakersfield was a lot of the really good country and Western musicians had really blown out of, you know, Tennessee and some of the other recording places because they felt that they were too slick willy down there. So they, they they moved up to Bakersfield. The whole Bakersfield music sound and genre was taking off. And Kreutzmann in his book, Deal, um, talks about that influence on, on Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. You know, American Beauty is a rose. It's, you know, it's a very specific rose. And, you know, going to concerts in the 70s, uh, and even later, um, there were more American Beauty roses that were brought into, you know, into the arenas and into the shows and tossed onto the stage. You know, it was interesting because you could walk into a show and you would smell the roses. You'd also smell a tremendous amount of weed. Right. <laughs> uh, but But you would smell the roses as well. And it was interesting because, you know, so often throughout the show that, you know, the roses stayed on the floor and Bob and and Jerry would pick them up and take a bite and throw them into the crowd. But, (laughs) you know, all of that was really a tribute uh, over the long and haul to American Beauty. Well, and you can't really talk about American Beauty without talking about the uh, the album artwork, because if you look at the word beauty, you can actually also see the word reality in the letters. Yeah, can. I wonder why they did it this way and what American reality means. What does that say to you? Oh, I don't think that the Grateful Dead really had that much of an influence on what the album cover looked like. Um, I think it was Stanley Mouse and Stanley Mouse's studios. You know, there was just a lot of stuff going on with, you know, the Beatles. You know, you play the album, you know, six times in reverse. It says that, you know, Paul is dead or John is dead or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the dead, you know, in their, their little, um, you know, whimsical way thought it would be funny, thought it would be funny to just say American beauty and American reality and have it all sort of put together. Uh, well, let's really quick talk about our favorite lyric on American beauty. So my, pers- my personal favorite lyric is from Box of Rain and it's, Walk out of any doorway, feel your way, feel your way like the day before. Maybe you'll find direction around some corner where it's been waiting to meet you. This line resonates with me because it's kind of a really good reminder that none of us really have it figured out. Everybody's just trying to find their way around. I think if we find community in other people um, and are comfortable with, with ourselves around that corner, 
the direction might be waiting to meet us. We just haven't found it yet. I think that trusting that you're on the right path really speaks to me uh, in a lot of ways. That's good. What's your favorite? I'm glad that, I'm glad <laughs> that you picked from Boxer Rain. Is that what you picked from too? Well, I, I, you know, honestly, um, I would just take the entire song. It's really hard to um, look at Boxer Rain and say, oh, well, those are my favorite words. Because, you know, I, I've cried my eyes out, you know, looking at loss of parents and, you mm -hmm. know, with box of rain on the on the um, on the on the box. If I had to say something, um, there's some interesting, you know, there's some interesting words that, that I know that that were put together and it's walking to splintered sunlight. Inch your way through dead dreams to another land. Maybe you're tired and broken. Your tongue is twisted with words half spoken and thoughts unclear. If you think, and I had to think about this, um, where my mom and my, where my dad were, which is where Phil's parents were, your thoughts are, you know, your thoughts are unclear. Your words, you can't even put two words together. You're tired. You're broken. Um, and what it means by walking to splintered sunlight is splintered sunlight is going in to the next world. It's splintered sunlight. And inch your, uh, inch your way through dead dreams to another land. They're, what what Bob and Phil are basically saying is it's okay. It's okay to leave us. It's okay to go through splintered sunlight into the next land because you're tired and you're broken and it, it's time to go. Goodbye. It's a goodbye story. You're making me cry over here, John. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really profound, really beautiful. Well, thanks. <laughs> um, so what do you want me to do? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, let's let's talk real quick about uh, who you kind of see as the forgotten man. So what or who, what element of this album do you think that maybe gets overlooked at times? I have two. I'll, I'll start. So the steel guitar. I'm going to go back to this instrument because it adds such a cool element to this album. Um, another layer of instrumentation that I personally don't hear a lot of in, in a lot of the music that I that I typically listen to, but it's such a refreshing change of pace and such an interesting it's such an interesting instrument and I just love hearing it. My second candidate is David Grisman on the mandolin. I, I don't think people forget that he exists. I'm just saying that like it's such a beautiful addition to both Ripple and Friend of the Devil. You know, he's not he's not in the Grateful Dead. Um, maybe people don't think of him first thing when they think of the Grateful Dead. Uh, but I think his his contributions to those songs really just amp up both songs for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> it's, it's David. I mean, David is just a um, one. He's just a great musician. He's been a great friend of Jerry's for forever. You know, he would sit in with the band and would typically sit in with Jerry and sit in, you know, he and Jerry did a ton of music together, which you ought to pull up and find um, since you like the mandolin. But 
you know, I think what, what was going on is Jerry said, hey, um, they, they, they called uh, Grissom the dog. And um, he said, hey, you know, we're going to be playing um, over Wally's place. Why don't you come down? And um, I, I don't know for sure, for sure, that he was originally intended to be, you know, on, you know, Friend of the Devil and Ripple. But um, his contribution, as you mentioned, is just it's it's just absolutely stellar. Absolutely stellar. It's like when you hear a really good mandolin player, which David is, you know, probably the best that I've ever heard. And when you hear a really good pedal steel player, which there aren't many, Jerry was one of them. Mm-hmm. It's just a really nice treat to hear. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so, so very much for your time and your insight. I've enjoyed it a lot. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Thank you to everyone for listening today. Whether you're a deadhead with hundreds of shows under your belt or just learning about The Grateful Dead, I hope this episode touched you in some way. It totally did for me. I got kind of emotional there a couple times. But that's what The Grateful Dead does to you. It helps you access something within you that brings comfort and inner peace. The Radio Gaga podcast comes out weekly, so be sure to subscribe on iTunes. On next week's episode, I'm talking all about Justin Timberlake and his first solo record after NSYNC, Justified. I get pretty deep down into my childhood memories on this one. And best of all, my friend Hannah joins me later in the episode to discuss all the greatest moments in JT history, including how the infamous Janet Jackson Super Bowl moment is responsible for changing the internet as we know it. So give Justified a listen this week and tune in again next Tuesday. Until then, you can visit RadioGagaBlog.com for updates and follow me at RadioGagaBlog on Instagram. See you back here next week.